We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this morning we're looking at verses 8 through 13. I invite you to follow along, please, as I read. When I finish verse number 13, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse number 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, we give thanks for your instructions that are found in your word. Paul wrote this to the church, to people like us, so that we would know how to behave in the household of God, your church. And so we ask that we would receive your instructions and that we would follow them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can see from the text this morning, we're gonna be talking about deacons. You know, the Bible describes two requisite offices in the church for its healthy and orderly function. In other words, if the church is going to function well in a healthy and orderly way, God has given two offices to the church. I just read 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, but let me read for you the opening verse of Philippians. In the opening verse of Philippians, you'll notice these two offices linked right there in the congregation at Philippi. This is what Paul says. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. In other words, he opens The sermon with a song. (laughs) Not sure. It's just a background music. It's very moving to all of us. And it's gone. Well, he opens the book of Philippians with these two offices. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, when you think about Gospel Grace Church, we don't have like, we don't have bishops who are over priests and then archbishops who are over them and we don't have a, a, a pope at the top. We don't, we don't have those different offices. We don't have deacons and then we have an archdeacon and we, we don't have that. We just look at the scriptures, passages like 1 Timothy 3, Philippians chapter 1, and it just shows us two offices. So that's all we have here. We believe that those are gifts given by God for the healthy and orderly function of the church. So as we've been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, we got to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, 
And there, Paul outlined the qualifications for elders or overseers or pastors there in the first seven verses. But then he goes on in our text today, the part we'll focus on in verses 8 through 13, and he talks about deacons. Now, the word deacon in English is not a translation, but rather a transliteration. A transliteration is a word that was made up that kind of sounds like its source word. So let me give you an illustration, and then we'll come back to deacon. One illustration is baptizo. It's the Greek word for, guess, baptize. There was no word baptize. They made up the word baptize. They transliterated the Greek word baptizo. They did the same thing with the office of deacon. They transliterated the Greek word diakonos, deacon. They made a word up that kind of sounds like it to refer to this office when they translated the scriptures into English. So there are about three or four times in the whole New Testament that you'll come across the transliterated word deacon. All the other times when the Greek text has the word diakonos, it's translated servant or minister. And so many times as you fold through the pages of your New Testament, you come across the word servant, the, the Greek word underlying it is diakonos, the same word that's used to help us understand this office. When it's used in a formal sense for the church, the office of deacon. Now, the Greek word in the first century, diakonos, was a word that was used for a table waiter or a server. Imagine you lived back then in the first century. You arrive at your favorite seafood restaurant near the coast of Ephesus. A woman comes up to your table. She says, hello, my name is Damla. I will be your diakonos for tonight. Can I start you off with something to drink? A server, someone who waited on tables. And so when you come across the words servant, serve, service, the underlying Greek word is the same one related to deacon. We actually see it in our text this morning. Look at verse number 10. In verse number 10, the little phrase, let them serve. The verbal root underneath the word serve is diakoneo. Or look in verse number 13, for those who serve well. Again, underneath the word serve is diakoneo. Some of you at this point in the message are zoning out. You're like, the music was good that you just played a minute ago. Can we do that again? That woke me up. But some of you are like, Greek lesson, before I finish my coffee, not a great idea, Lucas. And I get it. But the reason I want to talk to you about word meaning is because at the heart of the office of deacon is the idea of service. Deacons aren't senior advisors to the elders, like some sort of presidential cabinet. They aren't senators for the people, you know, like representatives to make sure the voice is heard. That's not what they are. They're primarily servants, first and foremost. 
So what I'd like to do as we look at this office for the church, the office of deacon, I'd like to ask three questions and seek to answer them this morning. The first one is this. What are the responsibilities of deacons? Well, like I've already said in the opening here, they serve. Deacons serve. Not only does the word deacon mean server or servant, but here in our text, that's what we see them doing. Verse 10, let them serve as deacons. Verse 13, those who serve well as deacons. So what are the responsibilities of deacons? They serve. Now, your very next question, and actually I'm looking at some of the deacons in the room, your next question should be, well, who do we serve? If our responsibility is to serve, well, then, then who do we serve? Well, Pastor Josh, after the service, is going to gather up all the deacons and have them come over to his house and wash his truck. And, uh, you know, spring is coming. He's going to have them all rake his lawn and mulch some stuff, you know. And, and when they finish that, they're going to organize his garage because, you know, deacons serve. Is that, is that how it works? No, that's not it at all. Deacons are not the Dwight Schrutes to the elders. They're not the assistants to the regional managers. No, deacons have the responsibility of serving, but they serve the church. That's who they serve. They serve the body of Christ by caring for the material needs of the church in spiritual ways. They serve the church in spiritual ways. Now, I want to take you to a case study where we see this unfold. It's actually the only one we have in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 6. And many refer to this account as really the prototypical deacons. Like, this is the first expression of deaconing that happened in the church. In Acts chapter 6, and I want to walk you up there. We have a case study this morning. Here's what's happening by the time we get to chapter 6. The church had been growing rapidly. You remember from Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. It's the feast of Pentecost. There are thousands and thousands of people who gathered for this pilgrimage feast into Jerusalem. Peter and the other apostles, they stand up and they preach. And thousands, thousands are saved that day. Actually, at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that there were 3,000 who were saved that day and they were added to the church. So, I mean, you talk about church growth in one day, 3,000 were added. They were gathering together. You keep reading Acts chapter 2. They're gathering together. They're enjoying sweet unity. And the text says more and more were added to the church daily. This is Acts 2.47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this addition of people to the church caught the attention of the Jewish leaders. They didn't like it, and so they gather up these apostles. And when I say gather, I mean arrested. They arrested them, they threatened them, they beat the apostles. But those apostles just kept preaching in Jerusalem the name of Christ, rejoicing. This is what it says in Acts 5.41. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this dishonor for the name. Consequently, Acts 5.14 says this, more than ever, 
believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. So catch this. Here's just a recap. Between Acts 2 and Acts 5, 3,000 people come to Christ. Every day, more and more people are added. And it says in Acts 5.14 that many more, both men and women, were added. So we're talking like this church is rapidly growing. People are coming to know Jesus in a saving way. They are leaving religion behind. They are coming to know a Savior who forgives sins and gives new life. As one author put it, things were going swimmingly. Until Acts chapter 6, verse 1. That's where the wheels start to come off. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here we see some conflict beginning to brew. In the first century church in Jerusalem, there were those who were called Hellenists. They spoke primarily Greek. They read the scriptures from the Septuagint. They belonged to families of the dispersion. They were likely born outside of Jerusalem. They were the Hellenists. But they were worshiping side by side with ones called Hebrews. These were Jews who were more traditional. They spoke Aramaic in their conversational language and probably studied the scriptures in Hebrew. They were likely born in the region of Palestine. They were more traditional. Hellenists on one side, Hebrews on the other. There were linguistic, cultural barriers that were causing some sense of tension in the church of Jerusalem. There was distance, there was stress, and it threatened the unity of the church. It says in the opening of chapter six, right there, that they were increasing in number, but there was a complaint. What we see in in Acts chapter six is that stress can very quickly lead to strife. And it can even happen in the church. Here's a church, they're growing rapidly, but they were having growing pains. You know, like it's difficult to grow. I would just say this, even at our own congregation right here, we have some growing pains of our own. I mean, have you ever tried to find a parking space like less than four blocks away? I mean, have you? some, Some mornings you're like in line for the coffee tea. You're like, I hope there's a little coffee left when I get up there. Growing pains, things can happen quickly, but that stress can actually turn into strife. Older folks come into the church and maybe they can't find a parking spot or a mom's bringing her little baby and she's carrying like the car seat and the bag and she's thinking to herself, why doesn't anybody let let moms park here, you know? And the senior citizens are like, why why do we have to park on the street? Why can't we, if people really cared? and, And soon there's like grumbling, Right? That can happen very quickly in a church. I don't, like, I don't like standing in line so long for my coffee. I wish there were more people staffing this ministry. And pretty soon these little whispers, stress points, turn into strife points. And that's what happened in the book of Acts. 
So what did this church of Jerusalem do? I, mean, I think that's the point of this text that I want to highlight. So what did they do? Well, look at Acts chapter 6, verse 2. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, or diakonin, there's the, the underlying word there, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So what did the church do during that time of stress when strife was beginning to bubble in the church? What did they do? Well, they appointed deacons. That's what they did. The church selected seven men, these prototypical deacons, the first expression that we see in church life. They were supposed to serve and care for the physical needs of the body. You know, we have records from the early centuries of the church that record what deacons did to serve the body and to help the unity. Deacons, these are like historical records. They visited Christians who had been arrested and put in prison. They buried martyred believers. Deacons cared for widows and orphans. Deacons visited the sick and distressed. They aided in baptisms the distribution of the Lord's Supper, and a variety of other servant-oriented functions. The deacon's first responsibility is to serve the church. But here in our text in Acts 6, we see a few other things that I want to highlight quickly. They don't just serve the church. Deacons also support the elders. Here in our text, the apostles in Acts chapter 6 The apostles are like pulled in all these different directions. It's almost like you can imagine them playing whack-a-mole while they're trying to handle the things of the church. Like this pops up and they try to deal with that. And this pops up and they try to deal with that. And they're distracted. Their attention is getting pulled in all these different directions. So the deacons came to the aid of the church leaders and freed them up to focus on prayer and ministry of the word. Look again at Acts chapter 6, verse 2. The apostles stand up. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They go on and say, pick out from among you seven men. And then they go on and say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. You almost wonder if there was like a suggestion box at the church of Jerusalem. You know those infamous suggestion boxes? You get all these anonymous tips. Maybe you elders should work a little harder. Maybe you should stay up a little bit later. Maybe you guys should figure out how to administrate a little better. I mean, don't you see this is your responsibility first? And you can imagine that all of these little suggestions are making their way into the suggestion box. And I want to tell you something. It is a major temptation for leaders of the church to just strive to get it done, handle it, manage it, take it, do more, work harder, stay longer. But what we find from this text is that that mentality actually threatens the progress of the gospel and the multiplication of disciples in the church. If the leaders give themselves to all those other things, then they're not gonna be doing the main things, which were prayer 
and ministry of the word. And so that's where these deacons come and they actually support the elders. I remember a deacon here in our church, and we have some fantastic deacons here in our church. I remember one of them recently coming up to me and just saying, how can I help more so that you can focus on what you need to do? Just like, oh, wow. Some of you are like, I need to get me some deacons. You know? <laughs> Man, just, just deacons, both historically and then we're blessed here. Just trying to lighten the load, clear away distractions so that these, these elders can focus on prayer and ministry of the word. Deacons serve the church. They support the elders. And the last thing I want to show you in this case study of Acts 6 is they actually sync up the congregation so that everyone together can pursue the mission of God. Do you remember the church of Jerusalem? They're like this mega church that's about to fracture. You have the Hellenists on one side. You have the Hebrews on the other side. And in God's wisdom, he encourages and, and, and leads this church to call out seven deacons. Now, I mentioned that the church is a mega church because, I mean, there's thousands. We know from Acts 2, there's 3,000. More and more people are added daily. More and more are being added daily. I mean, we don't even know how many thousand are there, but there are thousands of people in the church of Jerusalem. And did you notice how many deacons they called out? How many? Seven. So I just say that just to say this. Those seven deacons, it is highly unlikely that by themselves they were able to do all of this service. Do you want to know what's more likely? Is that they gathered people to serve with them. In other words, you hear this around Gospel Grace, you hear serve on teams. These deacons, these seven here in this mega church made up of thousands of new believers, they likely gathered the congregation to get involved in serving alongside of them. These were lead servants they didn't do all the serving just by themselves. They likely gathered people from the Church of Jerusalem to serve alongside of them. I don't know if you've ever heard this saying. It goes like this. The one who rows a boat seldom has time to rock the boat. I think there's something beautiful about these deacons. They probably gathered people in and said, hey, we need help rowing. And as people began to row the boat, they stopped rocking the boat. And these deacons helped bring unity to this church that was struggling with tension. One author called the deacons, they're like shock absorbers for the church of Jerusalem, handling the bumps and the potholes that allowed people to come together in the unity that Christ died to achieve. These servants, these deacons, didn't have a glamorous job. They worked quietly and often behind the scenes. But it had a profound effect on the church. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. We'll just wrap up this case study. Acts 6, 7. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So while the elders focused on leading, teaching, praying, and shepherding the flock, the deacons were striving to serve the body, support the leaders, and sync up the congregation for the glory of God. And when that happened, there was something beautiful that occurred in the church of Jerusalem. Well, I think this case study 
helps us understand the responsibilities of deacons. But what about the requirements for deacons? And that's really the emphasis of our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 primarily is about the requirements for deacons. It helps us answer this question, can just anyone be a deacon? Well, I would say this. In one sense, we're all supposed to be servants, okay? We're supposed to follow Jesus. He's the one who led us as a servant and said, follow me in this way. So in one sense, we're all supposed to be servants. But in terms of the church office, there are some specific qualifications. And that's what Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Notice first how Paul emphasizes that deacons must be worthy of respect. Or verse number 8, it says, they must be dignified. You know, when deacons serve the church, they often encounter people who are suffering. They encounter points of difficulty in the congregation's life. People who are struggling. And I think it's important, you know, Paul is saying here, listen, so these men who enter into these difficult circumstances, they need to be dignified people. I mean, the Lucas translation is they can't be goof-offs, mess-ups, ding-dongs, or screwballs. That's the Lucas translation. They need to be honorable, noble, respectable people who can enter into difficult circumstances and bring a sense of sobriety and care and wisdom. Respectable people. Number two, what you see secondly in our text this morning in verse number eight is that they need to be self-controlled people. Deacons need to be self-controlled in the areas of speech, alcohol, and money. Look at verse eight. Look at the text. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. When it comes to their tongues, the deacons can't be the people in the church who say one thing to this group and then something else over here to a different group. They can't be the people in the church who say one thing but do another thing. They have to be the kind of people, like, like Will Rogers said, who aren't afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. They're not afraid to do that because these are people who watch their words. They speak consistently and truthfully. They don't flatter or gossip. They're not slippery with their words. They're self-controlled. Self-controlled with their tongues. Self-controlled with their alcohol consumption. You see that in verse 8. They control their appetites. They don't impair their judgment with substance abuse. Deacons aren't given over to their cravings. They're not constantly thinking about their next drink. They're sober. And if they drink, they're self-controlled. This character also touches on money in verse 8. Deacons can't be underhanded in business. They can't be greedy or miserly. Deacons don't pursue dishonest profits, sketchy deals, under-the-table under business practices. They don't, they don't do those things. That's not the character of a deacon. They're attuned to generosity and financial self-control. So, in general, they're respectable. 
They have self-control in the matters of their tongue, their appetites, and their wallets. Here's number three in this list of qualifications. Deacons know their Bibles and they live out their faith. I get that from verse number nine. They know their Bibles and they live out their faith. Look at verse number nine. It says, they hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think this is important because some people think that deacon service only has to do with the hands. And it doesn't have anything to do with the heart. But they're mistaken. I mean, sadly, you could almost imagine hearing someone say this. Yes, I nominated Frank to be a deacon because he's good at fixing things. Oh, I'm, I'm going to nominate Barry. He's going to make a great deacon because he's, he's so good at business. Well, wait a second. Deacons aren't primarily skilled laborers. I mean, look at this list of qualifications. It doesn't say must have electrical proficiency, mechanical abilities, experience running a food pantry. It doesn't say that in here at all. No, it says deacons must be people of deep character. They need to be, and I think this is important, they need to be spiritual people who hold the faith. If they don't know what the faith is, they're not ready to be deacons. I mean, I just think sometimes in a church, you're like, oh, this, this person, they seem to be really willing to help out. Let's make them a deacon. Stop. Do they hold the faith in good conscience? I think this is so important because, again, just, just pause for a second and think about the circumstances where deacons serve. They go into places of brokenness. They, they go into places of need. They go into places where there are people who are struggling, maybe factious people. If these are immature in the faith, they're going to be destroyed in their service. They need to be spiritual people who, verse, verse 9 says, who hold the faith in a good conscience. They have to know the faith, and they have to hold the faith, and they have to live it. That's the clear conscience part. They have to live it out, not be hypocrites. Do you remember, we were just at the Acts 6 case study. When they chose out those seven men, it says, choose out from among you seven men who are, listen to the qualifications, full of the spirit and wisdom, full of faith. Deacons need to be people who know their Bibles and live out their faith. I was studying for this, uh, this sermon this week. He came across really an inspiring story in the early 300s of a deacon. In the early 300s, the emperor Licinius intensified persecution against the Christians. He passed an edict that all citizens needed to be involved in repairing the altars and sacrificing to the god Jupiter. Well, obviously, Christians couldn't obey that idolatrous command, and so they became targets of persecution. There was a deacon named Habib from the village of Telzaha in modern-day Turkey, and he went secretly to the churches of these surrounding villages, and he would go and he would read scripture. He would encourage and strengthen believers and then admonish them to stand fast in the truth 
and not fear their persecutors. Well, there were some informants that heard what Habib, this deacon, was doing. And so they wrote to Licinius and said, Habib, who is a deacon in the village of Telzaha, goes about and ministers secretly in every place and resists the command of the emperor and is not afraid. Habib was eventually captured and burned at the stake. But this deacon held the mystery of faith firm to the end. You see, he's not remembered because he fixed a leaky faucet, although that may be a valid way to serve in the church. But he is remembered because he held the faith. So when it comes to deacons, we're looking for people of character, people who are spiritual, those who are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, full of faith, and then live it consistently in their behavior. Paul says fourthly in our text, Fourthly, prospective deacons, verse number 10, they need to be tried and true. And I get that from the word tested. They need to be tested. And if approved as blameless, then they can serve. Now, here at Gospel Grace Church, some of you know how this works and some of you don't. Uh, There are times when needs arise in the church and we take nominations uh, for deacons. And what we ask you to do is to appraise the lives of those you wish to nominate. And so there's this email that will go out. And on this email, it has an attachment. And in the attachment is a list of the qualifications of deacons with these scripture passages listed next to them. Like there are these little paragraphs. How many of you have ever seen one of those? Please raise your hand because you've nominated and I hope that you've read these. (laughs) Because actually when we send out this email, there's that attachment. And for you to be able to nominate, it asks you, Have you read the qualifications for deacons? It asks you that. And the reason we ask you that is because we want you to be reminded about what the Bible says concerning deacons. Like, have you read that? You're supposed to click. Yes. It's not supposed to be like, you know, the bottom when you sign up for an app and you have to click the accept, you know. You just scroll down and hit accept. Not that you ever do that. But it's not supposed to be like that. You're actually supposed to read it. Yes, I've read the qualifications for deacons. And then you're supposed to nominate. Usually you put this person's name in there. And then we do this. this is, and this isn't accidental. We do this on purpose. You say, well, why would you like to nominate them? Listen, that's an adventure to read those answers. <laughs> but what you're hoping to find, as a, as a pastor, you're hoping like, that they're putting like verses in there. Like, wow, wow, they're dignified. Like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. <laughs> they seem to hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That's what I see in this person. And you're like, oh, amen, amen. But we, we you know, we, we have a few cringy moments sometimes. You know, those aren't the answers we always get. Sometimes you have like, quote, he has age and experience. Well, this is another one. He has good skills. <laughs> He's been faithful to attend community group. But, like, those are good things. But we want to screen potential deacons according to the qualifications found in Scripture. Friends, those who serve will be tested. 
So we want to test them carefully before they serve. And I think that's what verse number 10 is calling us to do. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Put their lives up to the test of scripture. And then let them serve if they pass what scripture says. Our text continues unfolding the requirements for deacons, but now it moves from general qualifications to a specific focus on women in verse number 11. Take a look at verse number 11. Then we'll go to a specific focus on men in verse number 12. But first, notice how the ladies of verse 11 have somewhat mirrored qualifications of those covered earlier in the text. Look at verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let me see if I can show you the connection. Verse number 11, they're supposed to be dignified. You see the same word in verse 8. Do you see it in verse 8 up above? Dignified. Verse 11, not slanderers. Go up to verse 8. Not double-tongued. Verse 11, sober-minded. Look at verse 8. Not addicted to much wine. Verse 11, faithful in all things. Verse 10, blameless. So we're, we're kind of seeing this mirror, this correlation that's happening here between verse 11 and the general qualifications that are given in 8 through 10. These women that are mentioned in verse number 11 are not supposed to be malicious gossips, deceivers, accusers. As one commentator put it, they're not supposed to be she-devils. The reason they did that is because the Greek word underneath that is diabolus. Sounds very much like diabolos. They're not supposed to be that. They need to be temperate, level-headed, sensible, self-controlled. It says they need to be faithful in all things. And just think, faithful to their husbands if they're married, faithful to their families if they have children, faithful to Christ, faithful to his church, faithful in all things. Now, when we finish verse 11, the focus shifts to men, specifically in verse 12. Men in their marriage, men in their families. It calls them to be faithful to their wives. Do you see that in verse 12? It says, the husband of one wife. Deacons who are married need to be sexually faithful and pure to their wives. If they have children, it says this, managing their children in their own households well, verse 12. They need to maintain orderly homes. A deacon's service begins with his family. So being a good family man is not a bonus for a deacon. It's a prerequisite for a deacon. His godliness needs to shine in his marriage. He needs to manage his children with deliberateness and diligence. Gentle firmness, joyful love. That's what you see in the lives of deacons when it comes to their marriage and their children. Now, I'm not sure if you caught this, but many of the qualities, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we went through the, the list of elders' qualifications, many of the qualifications for elders, you see similar ones for deacons. The main difference between the two is not a difference of character. 
Both of these lists for both elders and for deacons are really saying these officers in the church need to be people of character. It's not really a difference of character. It's a difference of gifts and responsibilities. That being said, notice a couple things that are required for elders in the first part of the chapter that are conspicuously missing from the deacon's qualifications that we're looking at this week. Notice how for these deacons in verses 8 through 13, there is no teaching prerequisite. Do you see it there? It's not in there. Look at all the qualifications for the deacon and you don't find anything in there. They must be great teachers. It's not in there. It doesn't even talk about teaching. Whereas when you, when you look at the list for elders, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says, they must be able to teach. So elders must be able to teach, but deacons don't have to. It doesn't mean they can't teach. It just means if they do, like think about Stephen or Philip from Acts chapter 6 through 8. If they do teach, it's not part of their deaconing requirements. Notice secondly, not only do they not have to be apt to teach, but secondly, they aren't called upon to manage the household of God. That's missing. And I want to show that to you. Whereas elders are called overseers, 1 Timothy 3.1, they're expected to rule well, it says in 1 Timothy 5.17. They're supposed to be leaders, Hebrews 13.7. They're supposed to exercise oversight, 1 Peter 5.2. When we look at the qualifications for deacons, they don't have to bear that burden. Now, let's compare the elder qualification and the deacon qualification in verses 4 and 12. So look at the text. Look at verse 4. It's a qualification for elders. And then look at verse 12, the qualification for deacon. And notice what's missing in the deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 4. This is for elders. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now look down to verse 12. Under the deacon's qualifications, it says, managing their children and their own households well. But then it stops. The part about managing the church is left off of the deacon's qualifications. They do need to care for their families, but they don't need to oversee the church because that's what the elders do. They don't have to be apt to teach. They're not bearing the burden of overseeing the church. Those are the things the elders do. Instead, they're giving themselves to the service of the Lord and his people. What we've done now at this point is we've looked at the responsibilities and the requirements of deacons. But I want to close with one final question. And that is, well, what are the results when deacons serve well? When a church like ours is blessed with really fantastic deacons, what are the results? Well, look at verse number 13 of our text this morning as we close. It says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons who serve well will acquire a better standing before the people of God. And I want you to think about that. Why do they receive a better standing before the people of God? 
Because Jesus put it this way. If you want to be great, then be a what? Then be a servant. They actually have great standing in our midst because they are great servants for the Lord. They acquire for themselves a better standing before the people of God and more confidence in their faith. They'll be respected as great servants in the congregation and they'll have increased assurance of their own faith as they serve the Lord in this way. You know, when I digested verse number 13 this past week, I was just stirred to show more appreciation for our deacons here at Gospel Grace Church. Maybe some of you feel the same way. I mean, maybe just a quick text this week, an email, a gift card, or a word of thanks would go a long way for the deacons who serve our church so faithfully. You know, deacons do a lot of grunt work, not stage work. But they have great effect on the mission of the church. Better standing in our midst, more confidence in their faith. And what we find from, from Acts chapter 6 that we looked at the case study, they actually advance the church. The word of God continued. Remember, they appointed these seven deacons. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. In other words, deacons helped the mission move forward. The elders were able to be servant leaders, focused on prayer, ministry of the word, leading and shepherding the flock. The deacons were able to be lead servants. They supported the elders, served the church, and synced up the congregation in beautiful unity. What we find from our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Acts chapter 6, is that the church needs deacons. They need to be deacons who meet their requirements, deacons who fulfill their responsibilities. And then all of us are blessed as we experience the results. Well, I thank the Lord for our deacon team here at GGC. Service isn't easy for our deacons, but like all of God's servants, do you know what they do? Our deacons here, just as deacons of the past have, they get their strength and their motivation by looking to Jesus. It is Jesus himself who said this, whomever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, diakoneo, but to serve, diakoneo, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we follow our Lord, both in the formal office and as Christians at large, in serving one another. Let's pray together as we close. I wonder if you'd just quiet your hearts and bow your heads and reflect on the word of the Lord this morning. Maybe as you think about the list of qualifications, maybe, maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know what's most extraordinary about that list is, is how ordinary those qualifications are. And if you're thinking that, you're right. Because many of the things listed there are things in other passages of Scripture that are applied to all of us. All believers need to not be double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not greedy. All believers need to hold the mystery of the faith. All married believers have to have fidelity in their marriage or manage their children well. 
So I just wonder, as you reflect on this text, I wonder if you need to bear under the ordinary expectations that God has for all of us, not just deacons. Is there something that needs to change in your life or your family? Would you take that to the Lord in prayer this morning? And perhaps while you're praying, maybe you could just remember our current deacons here at Gospel Grace Church. Just pray for them. Ask that the Lord would strengthen and encourage them. Pray for future deacons here, people who are qualified and ready to serve the church. Finally, I wonder if some of you are just burdened to show appreciation for our deacon team. No glamour in their work, but there is great honor in their work. Maybe this week you need to say something, send a text, pass along a word of thanks. as you're reflecting on the word of the Lord, I'm going to invite any of our deacons who are in our service this morning, this first service, I'd like to invite any of our deacons from first service just to come up to the front, please. Deacons, if you're here, yeah, you can't be shy. I'm asking you to come up to the front. I want to close this morning with a word of prayer over our deacon team. We have a gift for them. We want to thank them for their quiet and humble service to this church. This isn't our whole deacon team. Some of them are going to be in service number two, but the ones who are here, we want to thank them. You can see the whole team up on the screen behind me. But I wonder if you'd stand with me. Would you stand and join me? I want to pray over these deacons, a prayer of thanks, a prayer of encouragement over their service to our church. Let's close in prayer, and I just want to invite you to join me in this. Lord, thank you for each one of these deacons and the way that they have served your people. We have been blessed as a congregation because of their, their humble service. Thank you for your plan to use deacons in the support of your church. Thank you that because of their service, your word has continued to increase in our midst. Your name has continued to spread in this valley. Disciples have been multiplied here. And so we give thanks for this team. For all those who have served as deacons here at Gospel Grace, we give thanks. Their servanthood, humility, lowliness, it has made them great in our midst. So we pray that you would sustain them and encourage them and fuel them for continued service as deacons. We ask this in your name. Amen and amen.